Tom asked me to read from Exodus chapter 33, 12 to 23. And as you know, we're, he's preaching his way through the Gospel of Mark. So this is a foundational passage for what he's going to be talking about today. This is from the New Living Translation. One day, Moses said to the Lord, You have been telling me, take these people to the promised land, but you haven't told me whom you will send with me. You have told me, I know you by name and I look favorably on you. If it is true that you look favorably on me, let me know your ways so I may understand you more fully and continue to enjoy your favor. And remember that this nation is your very own people. The Lord replied, I will personally go with you, Moses, and I will give you rest. Everything will be fine for you. Then Moses said, if you don't personally go with us, don't make us leave this place. How will anyone know that you look favorably on me, on me and on your people, if you don't go with us? For your presence among us sets your people and me apart from all other people on this earth. The Lord replied to Moses, I will indeed do what you have asked, for I look favorably on you, and I know you by name. Moses responded, Then show me your glorious presence. The Lord replied, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will call you out. I will call out my name, Yahweh, before you, for I will show mercy to anyone I choose, and I will show compassion to anyone I choose. But you may not look directly at my face, for no one may see me and live. The Lord continued, Look, stand near me here on this rock. As my glorious presence passes by, I will hide you in the crevice of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and let you see me from behind. But my face, my face will not be seen. Thanks, Val. Have a seat. Well, have you ever had a mountaintop experience? Actually, let me, let, me, let me back up a little. When I say the words mountaintop experience, what do you think of? What's that? Mount Thompson. Excellent. Yes, what was that? Mount Everest. Mount Everest, okay, all right. But, but the experience, that kind of experience, I had a mountaintop experience. Wait, well, what comes to your mind? Okay, an epiphany of God's greatness. Good. What else? Rest. This all can't happen by chance. This all can't happen by chance. Excellent. Something that transports you out of the everyday. Yeah, okay. Something that transports you out of the everyday. Excellent. Thanks, Ralph. Cameron. Hope. Hope. Excellent. Shifting gears slightly, how many of you would say camp? Growing up was kind of like a mountaintop experience. How many of you, maybe a camp or maybe some kind of a uh, retreat or maybe it was just family vacation. How many of you would identify that that was kind of like a mountaintop experience? And what I mean by that is it was, it was kind of one of those unique experiences that were sort of apart from daily life. And, and it was something, frankly, that you didn't want to leave. It was so great. How many of you would identify that? Maybe, maybe for you... A five-day trek in the backcountry is like a mountaintop experience, whether there's any mountains around or not. Maybe 
For you, it's, it's the kind of experience where, um, you know, maybe you went to a conference once, or you were at a retreat, or, or you were just among an, an incredible group of friends, and it seemed like every time you were with them, magical things happened. Maybe for some of you, um, a really rigorous discussion around a good meal is one of those mountaintop experiences where you think, oh, if, could, if you know, I, don't, I never want this to end. This is so great. You get what I'm saying? Those kinds of experiences? How do you feel during those mountaintop experiences? What do you feel, Terry? Alive. Alive. Yeah, what else? Complete. Joy. Joy. Accomplishment. Peaceful, yeah. And, and then kind of related to that, how do you feel when you come back to regular life? Monday morning. How does that feel? Describe the feeling to me of, of those of you who camp was special for, you know, coming back from home from camp, waking up the next day, not in your stinky bunk with a bunch of other kids, but at home or, or coming home from that retreat or, or just after that amazing experience with friends. What did it feel like? Describe that for me. A void, huge void. What else? Heard someone else say something. Let down. A letdown, yeah. Depression, absolutely. Oppression, okay, sorry. <laughs> Both. Yeah. Like something's missing. Like, I just wish that could have continued. And now I'm here, you know. Cassandra, do you have your hand up? What do you feel when that's... Yeah, back to the same broken puzzle. Yeah, I thought I had a picture of the wholeness or what it looked like complete, and now there's just pieces all over the room, right? Yeah. Well, today, we're going to talk about mountaintop experiences. And we're going to try to ask the question of, how do they fit into our lives? Or maybe the question I want to ask is, are they helpful to us? Or are they harmful to us? Today, we're going to read the passage in Mark where Jesus takes his disciples on a mountaintop experience. And we're going to walk through this story together, and I hope it's pretty interactive today, as we kind of ask the question, what about these mountaintop experiences? What about our life with Jesus? You know, we're, we're back in Mark now. We'll be in Mark now for a while. And... Uh, Last time we dealt with Mark, so I, I realized last week we took a bit of a break. We talked about our vision, who we are as a church, where we're going, how we can serve. And uh, I encourage you, if you missed that, to listen to it. Not because I'm a great speaker, but because uh, we want to get on the same page as the church as we move forward. So that's posted online. But um, we looked at the passage in Mark that we talked about how it's the pivot story in all of Mark, right? How the first half of Mark is leading us to this Climax, we even use the metaphor, I use the metaphor of the mountain summit, a little bit different than how we're going to use it today, but uh, this idea that we come to a hinge point in the Gospel of Mark. And it's this story where the disciples are asked by Jesus, who do you say I am? Remember, the first half of Mark has been asking the question, who is this guy? Who is this Jesus? And can I trust him? He's, He's challenging me to follow him, but can I trust him to follow him? And, and so the first half of Mark just goes around and around and around those questions. This is Jesus. 
Take a look. Watch what he does. Watch how he touches people. Hear, listen to what he's saying. You know, watch him in conflict. Watch him in action. Do you see who he is? Do you see who he is? And at this critical moment, he asks his disciples, who do you say I am? And Peter says, you're the Messiah. And there's this amazing revelation point, and it changes the tone of the whole book, because remember, to them, Messiah was this glorious, victorious, um, you know, kicking butts and taking names kind of a guy. And, and they were just so excited that Jesus, yes, you're the Messiah. We're going to follow you from victory to victory. And at that very moment, Jesus begins to tell them, by the way, Messiah means I'm going to suffer, I'm going to be rejected, and I'm going to die. And they are very upset by that. Peter objects and shut down royally. But the others are challenged by this. What do you mean, Jesus? Messiah is suffering and death. That means, as a Messiah, you're a failure. You can't just go and die. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up. And, and he challenges them to let him show them what Messiah looks like with his life. And it's going to be a big, big challenge. And, and it kind of leaves them wondering, well, where does that leave us? Like, what does it mean that we're following this Jesus who's this kind of Messiah? And he says, well, it means that if you're following me, and I'm going to a cross. If you're following me, and I'm going to die, then it means you are going to experience suffering. You are going to experience death. If you're following me. This is a huge, um, challenging... Uh, you know, for us, for you and I, even if you're new to the church thing, and you're kind of new to the Bible, and you're just kind of exploring things, generally in culture, we kind of know the basic story outline of Jesus, Right? We all know he died. Right? And even if you don't yet believe that he rose again from the dead, you all know that somebody else believes that. Right? So the general outline of the story that Jesus, you know, lived and died and rose again is kind of known to us. But to them, this is foreign territory. They are not aware of this. This, this comes against what their expectations were about Messiah. And they're, I think they're really thrown for a loop. And so what Jesus does today is something really special. What Jesus does today is he takes his closest three disciples, Peter, James, and John, and he takes them up a mountain for a truly mountaintop experience. And I I think it says something about Jesus, something about his sensitivity to us, to the fact that he knows our hearts and our lives, and he knows where we're confused, he knows where we're upset, He knows where the things that he's been revealing to us and talking to us about, he knows where that's sitting against what we had thought or what we'd expected or what we had hoped from life. And he knows the confusion. He knows the brokenness. He knows that. And so in this story, he takes his closest three and he pulls them apart from life to give them an incredible experience of who he is and what it means to follow him. So let's dive into the story. And if I'd had a more sane week, I'd have thought to have this printed in the bulletin, and I apologize for that. So um, if you want to follow along, um, there's a few Bibles scattered around in your pews, or just listen as I, as I read the story. So here it is from Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 2. We're going to walk through it together. You'll have an opportunity to ask some questions, or we'll have an opportunity to discuss it uh, a little bit later as we go. After six days, so after the big profession of who Jesus is, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high 
mountain where they were all alone. Alone with Jesus. There, he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzlingly white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Can you imagine what it was like for these guys to experience the curtain being pulled back? This is Jesus. All he's ever worn is jeans and a hoodie. You know? A dusty robe. And all of a sudden, here he is in dazzling white. Here he is in all of his splendor and they can see him. And he's not alone, but who's the supporting cast? It's Elijah and Moses, the two greatest prophets from the whole of the Old Testament. And they're there with Jesus. Moses easily can stand for the law. Elijah for the prophets. The whole story of God pointing toward Jesus. And here they are having a conversation with this glorious one who's been transfigured before them. Val read for us one of the background stories of this passage. We're going to see more unfold from that. But just this image of the glory of the Messiah being shown to them is very powerful. You see, Jesus has been saying some confusing things to them, as we already said. And they're trying to fit together this Messiah image of the glorious reigning king, which they had, with this suffering business that he's been talking about. And he takes them up the mountain. And by peeling back this curtain, he shows them that, oh, I am the reigning king. I am the glorious one. Those aren't two different things. The man who's going to walk down that dusty road of suffering and is going to hang on that cross is the glorious reigning king. And they have this opportunity or this moment, this mountaintop experience where all of that gets pulled away so they can really see Jesus for who he is. This is an amazing experience as they see it happen in front of their eyes. Now, what would you have done at that moment? What would you have said how would you have responded to, you know, I think, I wonder if up to this point they, they weren't really sure about Jesus. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? I mean he could say a lot of things and definitely you're a prophet and definitely got power, but, you know, but at this point, it's like, you think at least all doubt has been removed about who this guy is. What would you have said or done at this point? Just think about that. You don't need to respond. What would you have said or done at this point? Well, thankfully we have Peter we know what he would say and do. So, uh, here, let's go on with the story. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, which means teacher, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. I like that. Let us put up three shelters. And, and just for you Bible nerds, it's the same word as tabernacle. Right? The worship tent that was built by the Old Testament people where God's presence dwelt among them. Okay? Let's build three tabernacles. Let's build three shelters. Let's build three shrines. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. These are like the early city planners of the New Jerusalem. Okay, just kidding. But there's one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And I love this. Mark's little commentary. He did not know what to say. <laughs> well, you know, with Peter, 
If you don't know what to say, just say the first thing that comes to your mind, right? Okay. Uh, he did not know what to say. They were so frightened, which is understandable. We'll come back to what Peter responds, but th- look what happens next. There's no response. There's no Peter. Be quiet. None of that. A cloud appeared and covered them. And a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. Now, we heard the story that Val read for us out of Exodus. And, and we've seen moments in the, in the story of, of, of the children of Israel where the cloud descends, you know, the cloud would descend in, in covenant-making experiences. Um, the cloud here on the mountain with Moses. The, the opportunity when the, when, the, when the tabernacle was finally complete, the, the cloud descends, the cloud that had led them. This cloud marks the presence of God. When the, when the first temple was dedicated, the cloud descended. and It, it was this idea that God is present here. Not, not that God is contained here. They never believed that. But that this becomes a special place that marks the presence of God. And in that story um, where Moses is, is, is given this vision, this revelation of God's glory, he's hidden so that he won't be consumed. But these disciples are seeing Jesus in all of his glory. But this cloud that descends is a powerful image that God is present here. And the voice that's speaking to them says what? This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Now, if you've been tracking with Mark so far, where have we already heard something like this? Anyone? I heard it whispered. Be bold. The baptism. At his baptism, the heavens open The Spirit comes down in the form of a dove, and a voice from heaven says, You are my Son, whom I love. It's a quote from Psalm 2. You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. That's that's the baptismal statement from God the Father to His Son. But here, the Father speaks to them. The Father speaks to us and says, This is my Son, whom I love. And the point Listen to him. Listen to him. And in this image of the cloud coming down, the presence of God, think about it for a moment. This son is the presence of God. This son is the one who has come from the Father. In this son, we see the fullness of who God is. Right here. And the only response is to listen to him. Well, the only right response. Because you see, Peter's already tried out the response. I like to call it the religious response. Really. Because think about Peter's response. I have this amazing vision of who God is. This amazing experience where the layers are peeled back, where I can see God for who he is. And what do I want to do? I want to build a building so I can contain it. I want to put up a shelter, a shrine, so I can travel back to it. Right? I want to somehow keep the glory here. I want to somehow hold on to it, itemize it, systematize it, put a stamp on it, so that I know any time of day or night, if I want to experience the glory of God, what do I do? I just have a four or five hour trek ahead of me up that high mountain, and I can go to that shrine or that temple, that shelter, and I can experience the presence of God. Right? 
That's the religious response. The response that says, I've had this amazing experience, and now I know the formula. And now I know the place. I know the tradition. I know the thing I need to do to, to get this experience again. Let's build a shelter. Let's build a shrine. I think we all have that kind of response sometimes. Sometimes the way that we came to know Jesus, or sometimes the way that God has worked in our lives, we can begin to say, you know what? I know this is how God should work in everybody's life because this is how God worked in mine. Or we have an experience at a place or experience in a particular way that we begin to think that's the only way I can connect with God. That's the only way that I can really come to know who Jesus is. That, that's, if it doesn't happen that way, I can't, it can't happen for me. And we become like the kids at camp that say, well, I really love Jesus for that week, but the rest of the year really sucks. 51 weeks out of the year, I can't even, I don't even know who Jesus is because really the Jesus I know is at camp. I'm not mocking camp or anything like that. I'm just acknowledging it. Sometimes we can think of it in different ways, but like that for us. This is the way that Jesus works. And so if I can just get the formula right again, then I'll experience the goodness or the peace or the direction that God one time showed me in my life. That's the religious response. And what's powerful in this passage is that God is calling us, God is calling these disciples not to make a shrine, not to stay there. Because, again, linking it to the Exodus passage, the presence of God is going to go down the mountain and he's going to walk on a road that leads him to the cross. And that if we want to continue to experience who God is, we have to follow that dusty rabbi where he's going. He's not going to be up here on the mountain anymore. I love at the end of that, when they probably pick themselves up off the ground, they look around and, oh, Moses and Elijah are gone. Uh, it's only you left and you're not white anymore. You look the same as you always looked, supposedly. And Jesus continues to walk down the road that he's already on. And the words that are ringing in their ears are the words of the Father to them. This is my Son, whom I love. Listen to him. Listen to him. There's the religious response that says, let's set up a shrine. But the response that God is looking for is a response that says, now that I know who you are, I am even more ready to hear what you have to say. Now that I have these two images of the Messiah who's going to suffer and this Messiah who's reigning gloriously brought together to me in this person of Jesus, now I know you're the one that I need to be attuned to. You're the one my heart needs to follow. And wherever you're going to go, I'm going to follow you there. Let's finish the story and then we'll wrap it up. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders, oh, big surprise, not to tell anyone what they had seen. He likes that one. These guys cannot be trusted to speak clearly yet. He gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead, which really confused them. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what Rising from the dead meant. Just a side note there. Rising from the dead is something that all the Jews believed in. Well, most of them, I shouldn't say all of them, but you know, generally was believed that there'll be a resurrection at the end. But what Jesus is talking about is that the thing that's going to happen in the end where we receive new bodies, you know, raised from the dead, he was describing this is going to happen for him in the middle of history, which we believe it did. But that was completely outside their paradigm. And it didn't make sense that one man would be raised in the middle of history, as we would understand, sort of a guarantee of what's to come. They couldn't get that 
feel. And they, so they're confused by dead, first of all, but rising from the dead, too, was just as confusing. And I, I think it might be at this point that they begin to wonder again about this Jesus. Maybe already the vision that they've received begins to fade, and they start to think, wait a minute here. We just saw Elijah up on the mountain. And isn't there a prophecy about him? Yeah, oh yeah, they bring this up. Why do the teachers of the law say Elijah must come first? Because you see what they're thinking at this point. If Elijah has to come first, the prophecy at the end of the Old Testament, book of Malachi, if Elijah has to come first, but Elijah's just up in the mountain just now, then how can you be the Messiah exactly? Because he hasn't come yet, right? See, they're just trying to work this through. Jesus' response is, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? That's the real issue that they're grappling with. And then he says, but I tell you, Elijah has come. And we understand that he's referring to John the Baptist. But John the Baptist fulfills that prophecy. And they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. In other words, the forerunner of Jesus, the forerunner of the Messiah, suffered as well. Just like the Messiah is going to suffer. Just like his followers are going to suffer. Jesus takes these guys on this incredible experience to reveal himself to them. He takes them on this mountaintop experience that takes them away from the confusion of life, away from all the people and the crowds, you know, away from all the, the, the discussion and, and the wondering to show them, this is who I really am. But the goal of that mountaintop experience was not that they would stay up there. The goal of that mountaintop experience was that this revelation, this vision, this epiphany would translate into their following of Jesus down the road he's going. The road of suffering. The the point of this vision was to increase their ability to hear him, to listen to him. Especially Jesus knows, because in the days ahead, there's going to be times when Jesus looks awfully frail. When things get truly confusing. When he looks very, very pathetically human. And they're going to wonder at that point, really? This is the Messiah? And I think Jesus is trying to give them a vision of who he is that is always true, even when he's going to be hanging on that cross, so that they can remember, this is the Jesus we're following. That the glory that we saw is captured just as much on the cross as it is in the cloud. And the call for them is to listen and to follow. Well, that's the story as it rolls up for us. But what kind of questions does that raise for you? What kind of challenges that give to your walk with Jesus? Your uh, maybe mountaintop experiences or, or maybe just playing as you are coming to know Jesus, ways that is challenging you to become a better listener. Do you have any thoughts or comments or questions about that this morning? The question is, how does our suffering either help us or further the kingdom of God? That's a powerful question. And when people are in the midst of suffering, sometimes it's not the most helpful thing to say, well, 
<laughs> you know, God must really do something in your life, or you must have really needed it, or, you know, this. So along the list of helpful things not to say, that's probably one of them. But we do recognize, there's a couple things we recognize. The suffering that Jesus went under, and, and his followers went under, is because Jesus has called us to live out the new kingdom of God, the kingdom of reconciliation, the kingdom of forgiveness, the kingdom of healing. But we have an enemy. The enemy of our souls, the enemy of our lives, Satan himself. We also recognize that we live in a world that's been broken by sin. And so when we live out the kingdom of God, when we seek reconciliation, when we move into people's lives and we try to serve them, when we make right decisions because they're right, we suffer for that. And so when the kingdom of God comes into conflict with, you could say, the kingdoms of our world or the kingdoms of, of, of evil or, or just the kingdoms of, of Tom, Dick, and Harry, you know what I'm saying? Uh, well, as a result, there's conflict. And when we follow Jesus into a place where we're being obedient, we often will suffer for that. But that's the reality of being on the, the, the friction edge of the kingdom of God, right? But we also recognize that, that somehow... Through suffering, this has been true historically, this is true in the church worldwide, that somehow through suffering, the gospel, the good news of Jesus is shared. Literally down to not only Jesus himself dying to show God's love for the world, but martyrs, Christian brothers and sisters, down through the centuries and today, who follow Jesus unto death, that there is a powerful witness to God's love and to the kingdom of God through their suffering. And that though the suffering is at the hands of evil people like it was for, for Jesus, that God can do something amazing through that. Something amazing through our suffering. He can bring us into relationship with people. He can bring us into powerful places of witness. He can do transforming work in our lives. But there's something amazing that happens when we suffer for the sake of the kingdom. You know, the book of Revelation is something I've been studying lots lately in prep for a sermon series in the distant, distant future, hoping the Lord will come back before I have to preach that one. But anyway, <laughs> just joking. Um, sorry. In that, in that book, in that letter, um, th- there's powerful moments in this story where martyrs, people who have suffered, are saying, how much longer? And, and they're told that they overcome by the blood of the Lamb and their word of their testimony, there's a connection between their witness to Jesus and their suffering, and that God's kingdom is actually moving forward through their sacrifice. It's very powerful. And it's a huge encouragement to the church who's receiving the letter of Revelation in ancient Turkey and that area of the world, who are at that moment suffering under the grinding wheels of Rome, you know? And so they're suffering, and they're being told that somehow, mysteriously, and though you can't always see it, certainly can't see it in your daily life, somehow God is doing something amazing through your suffering. And so we're to take hope in that, and encouragement in that. And that's a long answer, but thank you, Sharon. Other questions or thoughts? Discussion? I agree, Val. Um, for those of you who may not have heard her, that Val, powerful, powerful connection that 
what was revealed to us in the mountain can't be fully understood or translated or, or engaged in our lives until we come down off the mountain. I, I just totally agree. I, I think what's at the very center of that vision? Jesus. But the challenge to listen to him. Well, I ask you, how do you listen to Jesus? He's telling you to take up your cross and follow him. He's telling you to forgive. He's telling you to love your enemies. He's telling you to connect with people in your life and in your community and to serve them. That, that's what it means to listen to Jesus. Well, you actually can't do that up on the mountain. You can only do that in your daily life. That's good. Thanks, Val. Other comments or questions as we get close to wrapping up today? Well, the question I have is, are mountaintop experiences harmful or helpful? And I think the answer is, it really depends on what we do with them. It depends on what we do with them. If we begin to um, look for the experience instead of following Jesus, I think they actually become harmful, debilitating even. If we begin to think, this is the only way God can work, and unless he works this way, I can't recognize him, I can't follow him. If we begin to think there's a certain formula, or a certain trick, or a certain seven steps, or whatever, then I think we can end up being stuck up on a mountain, as it were, and forgetting that Jesus is long out of sight. The vision that Jesus gives us is meant to compel us to move, to follow The voice of the Father to us is, this is my Son. And so there's this call to look at Him. And I think that's where that vision comes in. Look at this guy. Fix your eyes on Him. Let who He is fill your vision and your heart and your your goals and your priorities. And then what you're to do with that is to actually put one foot in front of the other. Listening to Him with our lives. And it's when we do that Well, then those times away on the mountaintop, as it were, those epiphany moments, those those quiet times with Jesus or those invigorating conversations or those days at camp or the days out in wherever, those become significant moments where Jesus reveals something new of himself to us, where he, he reminds us of who he is. He tells us of his love for us. He reminds us that he's got a dream and a plan for us that far outstrips anything we could have imagined. And that gets integrated into our daily lives where we're changing diapers. We're shoveling manure of one kind or another. We're, we're working at our jobs. You know what I'm saying? We're living under the pressures that we have. And I, I know, I look around, I see you. I know you, lots of you. And I know what kind of pressures that some of you are under to just keep life afloat. And I know how busy you are. And I know how in the midst of everything that's going on, it is so easy to feel disconnected from God. It is frankly so easy to feel disconnected from everything. Feel disconnected from ourselves. It's so easy to just lose it, isn't it? And I think that this story, it's a very, very significant story in the Gospels, but I think it reveals to us that Jesus, right in the midst of your busyness, your craziness, right in the midst of your sorrow, right in the midst of your depression, right in the midst of wherever you are, Jesus wants to actually steal you away for a moment. He wants to actually take you away for a moment. He wants to remind you of who he is. And we know, we've talked about this before, that one of the important practices we can do in our lives is to shut some things off, shut some phones off, try to get a little quiet moment, even if it's just five minutes, to remember who Jesus is. To ask him, Jesus, show me something today as I read 
as I read the Bible for a few minutes before the kids start screaming or whatever. Show me something about myself. Show me something about who you are. That Jesus actually wants to do that in our lives. And the goal is not... This is I, I really love the song that um, Sylvie picked, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. But the one caution I have about that song, it's not so much what the song intends, it's I think sometimes what we take from the song. That the things of earth go strangely dim, right? Yes, for a moment. But the reality is we're called to live life. The king, proclaim and live the kingdom of God come here on earth as it is in heaven, right? So yeah, I do think for a moment we need to turn our eyes on Jesus and let, let everything else sort of just fade away as we focus on Jesus. But the purpose of that is so that when we begin to walk, we are seeing the life that we have in a whole new way because of who Jesus is. So my challenge to you and to all of us this week, and I, for one, am facing a crazy, crazy week. I'm sure some of you are too. I'm facing a crazy week and I'm thinking, this is what I need. I need the kind of experience where I just hear that still small voice of Jesus reminding me of who he is in the midst of all of it. Reminding me that I got you back, Tom. I got you back. Reminding me that he's walking with me and giving me the power to engage the life that he's given me. And my call, my challenge is just to listen to him. To listen to what he's saying. To listen to what he's doing. And to live that out. Let me pray for you today. And as you go into this week ahead, I pray. Jesus, I do pray that you would give us a vision of who you are. I pray that this would be true of us individually. I pray for those who live really high-pressured lives, whether we have a bunch of young kids at home, whether we have jobs that are very demanding, whether we just have a lot going on. Lord Jesus, I pray for moments this week where, Jesus, you meet with us and you reveal yourself to us in a fresh and a new way. And I pray that we would be open ears, open hearts, open lives to listen to you and follow with Follow what you're saying. Lord Jesus, um, I pray for us as a congregation at the Erickson Covenant Church. I pray that we as a church will be people transformed by you, by a vision of you that is amazing. And I pray that that vision of who you are would transform our community, that we would be a listening community an active community following you. pray that you would show us how we can do that in community together, ways that we can serve each other, the ways that we can love each other, the ways that we can help others find and follow you. Jesus, we want to be a listening church. We want to be listening disciples. And so we ask in your name, Jesus, that you would create in us the kind of experiences with you that transforms us for life. In your name we pray. Amen. God be with you this week. Whatever your week holds, know that Jesus walks with you. His spirit is upon you. And he is calling you to follow him into whatever it is that he has set before you this week. God bless you.